Excellent. Um, are you are you happy with the gap? Sometimes, not you, but it feels to me like there are too many gaps in my life. A gap between reality and what I wish for. A gap between what I'd hoped for and what actually is happening. And today our title is, Are You Happy Being in the Gap? Do you need things to be closed up? Do you need it to be sorted out? Or can you be happy with God in the gap? For those of us here and those of us online, hello online people. Great to have you with us too. There's no gap between you and us today, really. We love you. Gaps are interesting. Gaps are part of life. Some of us might have taken a gap year before perhaps going on to university or something. Um, I took a gap year Ooh. in uh, 1980 and spent, <laughs> spent some time traveling. Uh, that's uh, Morocco, uh, North Africa, and uh, the, uh, the camel uh, does look somewhat better than me in that picture, I would admit. Um, I enjoyed my gap, gap year. Some gaps aren't as enjoyable, right? A lot of us are hoping to uh, get a job, and we don't like the gap of not having enough money. Some of us uh, youngsters who are still living at home I might be looking forward to escaping uh, the home and you're waiting in that gap between your kind of almost adults but not yet trusting with full, full responsibilities of adulthood and there's that frustrating gap when you want more of everything right now because I'm growing up and come on. And, and then of course some of us parents are looking forward to when those children do leave home and we have empty nests and, and there's that gap still between, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have more space in my house? Wouldn't it be nice if it was more tidy in my house? Wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to do so much washing? And, all those kinds of things. There's a gap somewhere between these things. Some of us might be students, uh, perhaps in undergraduate or like Amy doing a master's, I think, soon now, already started, started, you know, and then that's, that's a bit of a gap because it's not quite, not quite real life yet because, you know, you're still, still a student. Um, there are lots of gaps in life, but sometimes more significant than those gaps is that there are gaps in our Christian life. There are things that aren't as we wish them to be. And how do we handle that when spiritually things aren't fully, if you like, resolved? Perhaps you feel like the disciples did when Jesus says that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. And, and is, you, know, you have to give up everything. And Peter says, well, OK, but what about us? We, Peter and these disciples, we've left everything to follow you so what would there be for us? I mean, what's the benefit? You know, how, how, is this going to work out well for us now that we've given up everything to follow you? Perhaps you and I feel like that sometimes. We've given up everything to follow Christ. What's in it for us? Because sometimes it doesn't feel like there's much in it for us. And Jesus says, I tell you that the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on those 12 thrones, on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. Everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first, a hundred times. 100 times as much in this life and eternal life. And we haven't got time to unpack all of that today, but I think that we can understand 
that sense of almost a kind of holy frustration between the reality and where we think God is taking us, or we hope he will take us. And so we're going to have some questions today around this, which we're going to look at from the book of Haggai, which we've been studying together. And we're in our latest um, installment of the book of Haggai in chapter two, if you want to turn over there in advance. We're in Haggai chapter two, and I'm going to ask, uh, I think it's Nathan's going to read for us, is it? Or you're going to read for us? So please come up and read the passage for us, and then we'll talk about it uh, and what it means for us. So all yours. Morning, church. Morning. I'll be reading Haggai 2, um, verses 10 to 19. In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the Lord, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do you touch bread, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any, or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered, and said no. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered, and said, it shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai, and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days were, when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat, for to draw fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting, and with mildew, and with hell, in all the labours of your hands. Yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now, from this day and upward, from the fourth and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yet, yeah, as yet the vine, and the fig tree, and the pomegranate, and the olive tree, hath not brought forth from this day, will I bless you. Amen. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Excellent reading. Thank you so much. Now, just to put it in context, in case we uh, haven't been uh, here before, uh, the last couple of lessons we looked at earlier parts of Haggai. In the first chapter, we find that the people of Israel were in exile, had been back in the promised land, brought back by God's grace and strength into Jerusalem with the express purpose of building a temple. They've been back 15 years, and what have they done? They build their own houses, put roofs on their houses, and God's house has no roof. And so the prophet Haggai comes and says, "Um, do you think you might have got your priorities slightly off? I mean, God brought you here. You meant to be here to honor him. So how about building the house? Anyway, the people of Israel say, excellent idea, sorry, and they get on with it. In the beginning of chapter 2, we have the reassurance from God that though this is hard, that the future will be better than the past. The glory will be greater in the future. 
So although the past was glorious, when Solomon's temple was enormous and, and, and a wonder of the ancient world, and people came from all over the world to see that temple with its gold and engravings and everything, and now it's a pile of rubble, though that's not necessarily going to come back, and though right now all they can see is a pile of rubble, the future, he says, will be greater. The glory will be greater in the future than in the past. So do not fear, carry on with the work. So that's where we are right now. Then we come to this rather intriguing passage, which is a little bit complicated. And I'm going to do my best to explain some bits of it. But if I don't get it all, that's hopefully we'll get something. What we get here is we get really essentially God asking his people some questions that I would like to ask us to ask ourselves here today to reckon as to how we're responding to God's blessings and his promises and the fact that there is often this gap at the moment. So can we be happy in the gap? So the first thing that I think God is asking his people, and perhaps might ask us today, is how does coming into my blessings work? In other words, how does it work to come into a relationship with God? Israel needed reminding that they did not make themselves holy. So you have in this passage that Haggai is talking about going to the priest and says, there's something holy uh, in the skirt of a priest's skirt. So he's, he's got this holy object. If that comes in contact with something unholy, does it make that thing unholy? And the answer is no. As Boyce says, holiness is an isolated virtue. It's not communicable. So you don't get it just by being around something holy. Then he says, well, what about when a dead body turns up and, and uh, if someone's touched the dead body and then they come and be with something uh, uh, holy, does, what happens there? So the unholy connected to the holy is still un unholy in that sense. And I think what God is trying to say to the Israelites is simply this. It's only me that can make you holy. Being around the temple won't make you holy. Building the temple won't make you holy. Being my people, in a sense, won't make you holy. Getting on with the work won't make you holy. Being associated with priests who are working in the holies of holies and in the holy areas and the holy courts, that won't make you holy. Only I make you holy. He wanted to remind them that they were made holy by him, that he chose them, that he redeemed them, that he stuck with them. Uh, through their ups and downs. In Deuteronomy 7, he says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. He's chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, uh, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous. And by that he's saying, but there's nothing special about you. You weren't more numerous or more clever or more spiritually minded. You weren't more numerous. You were the fewest of all peoples, just a small tribe, really. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, uh, that he brought you out of, this is out of Egypt, with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the hand of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is, a, he is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. God chose them. That's how they got to be chosen. That's how they got to be, in a sense, holy. It's through his love. So we're going to take a break for a moment here. I'm going to ask you to turn to someone near you and talk for a couple of minutes here about how did God first make you aware that the blessing of being in a relationship with him was possible? How did that start? I think the second thing. 
the second question that God is asking his people and that we might want to ask ourselves today is what has been your experience of my, as in God's, holiness? What's been your experience of God's holiness? I think that's what he's asking the people here. He talks about the dead body. If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these holy things, does it become defiled? Oh, yes, it does become defiled. And I, I, I'm speculating a little bit, but I think maybe what Haggai and God is saying is, you know, you lot, you've been like a dead body to me for 15 years. I brought you back and you've been doing nothing like you're dead or, or something like that. And, and so just because you've kind of woken up a bit doesn't mean you're right with me. There's more. I, and just because you put a few stones on top of each other in my temple doesn't mean you're right with me. I need a real repentance of the heart. There's got to be a heartfelt repentance here. It's not just doing some of the right things. Because when we experience God's holiness, his blessings, his offering of, of his wondrous grace, what it's meant to do is not just make us better people. We're not supposed to be more moral than anybody else. That's not actually particularly possible, I think. It's, we, don't, you know, we never get to perfection anyway. The point is more that our thinking and our lives, our hearts, are transformed to view God and each other and the world completely differently to the way that we used to. And that's what he's hoping for from his people, because they may build the temple, but if they build the temple and they're not a changed people, then God will still not be glorified and honored. In chapter one, he said, you should do this to please me and to honor me. And that's what we do. We do it to please God and honor God with all that we do, but not to keep him, you know, like away, like uh, as long as we please you and honor you, you'll be nice to me, but more that it's a relationship thing. We're drawn into a desire to do what pleases God and honors God. That's meant to be the experience. Uh, they're not guaranteed God's blessing simply by doing the work he sets them to do, but by having a heart for him and his priorities. He makes the point that they, they, go, they look for 20 and there are only 10. They look for 50 measures of wine and there are only 20. I think what he's saying there is, I've allowed trouble into your life to get your attention so that you can actually experience the fullness of my blessings. Have you been paying attention? Have you noticed? And it's, their, their history of those 15 years was that they ignored God trying to get their attention. And although they now are starting to rebuild, I think he's, he's trying to drive this conviction deep into them to say, have you really got the point? You expected 20, there were only 10. There's a gap. There's a reason for the gap. It's meant to draw you to me. Have you understood it? There's blight, mildew, and hail. Uh, we had some thunder and lightning today. I don't know if we had any hail. But you know, if you're a farmer and you've got a crop in the field and there's hail, it's a bad day at the office for you. And this is what God has either caused or allowed. And it does seem he caused it. He says, I struck all the work of your hands. But he doesn't do it because he's mean, but because he knows they can never be truly fulfilled unless they have a heart for him. He's trying to get their attention. So second question for discussion. All right. What influences and or tempts you to forget to respect God's holiness? What are the things for you, if you're willing to share them with somebody here today, what are the sorts of things that influence you, that tempt you to forget God's holiness and to forget to respect his holiness and the need to give him that kind of full respect. All right. I think it's a tougher question than the first one. All right. But I know you can handle it. 
You can handle it. I trust you. So, okay, let's have some more discussion together with someone near you, and we'll take a few minutes for that, and then we'll come back. Let's move on to one last point. Another question from God to his people. What does your future look like? Mm. What does your future look like? I think for the people of Israel, here in, in the book of Haggai, the future at the moment doesn't look any better than the past. I mean, they, they, they started building. They started, uh, the, the whole book is set in uh, 15 weeks. It's, all, it's 15 weeks beginning to end. And they started building in October, uh, back in chapter, in chapter one, that's October. And this current prophecy that now we're looking at here in this section is from December. So they've been building the temple for three months. But their personal situation hasn't yet improved. This is the gap. Because they, he says the, the seed uh, is not in the barn. The vine, in verse 19, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, haven't borne fruit. So God is saying, actually, you're doing some of the right things here now. But how do you feel about the fact that at the moment, there's no material improvement for you? Those 50 that turned into 20 and the 20 that turned into 10 and the holes in their purses he talks about in chapter 1, that's actually not resolved yet. So you see, the people are in this gap period. They appear to have repented, there's been some obedience, but their circumstances haven't actually improved. They're no better now than they were when they started building. And sometimes it can be like that in the Christian life. You become a Christian and you think, excellent, everything's going to be great from now on. I'm going to be happy, happy, happy every day. Happy, you know. You know, that's it. I'm going to be full of joy all the time. My friends are all going to become Christians like tomorrow. I'm going to marry a Christian and they're going to be faithful and our children will become Christians and then they'll, their children will become Christians and I'll be a great, great granddad and have all these people around me who are all Christians. It's going to be warm and fuzzy and wonderful and, uh, and I'm going to die at 110 and it's, you know, whatever yours is, whatever yours is, we, we think God's going to do it and do it now, do it very soon and it's almost immediate. But there are gaps, aren't there? And when you look at the heroes of the Old Testament and the heroes and the heroines of the New Testament, we see those gaps in their lives. So we're not alone. And the gaps aren't always due to a lack of faith. Perhaps sometimes they are. But that's where we have to talk and pray and ask for God's discernment. But just because there's a gap doesn't mean God isn't God and you can't trust him. They, did, they were promised that the future would be better, but it might not be in their timing, and it might not look like they wanted. Do we really trust this? The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I mean, that is an all-encompassing word. I lack nothing. Nothing I need. Nothing that God knows I need. I lack nothing. Living a life where you know you lack nothing solves a lot of the emotional problems we have. I'm not talking about technical kind of mental health issues necessarily, but I'm talking about a lot of the emotions we have that are negative are resolved if we truly believe that we lack nothing. David did. And he wrote that psalm and Psalm 27 we looked at not so long ago. And then if we believe that, then seeking his kingdom first and his righteousness then we believe that all the things we need will be given to us. And so we get on with life. 
We can get on with the Christian life. We can get on with kingdom life and building God's kingdom and, and living the kingdom. We can get on with that if we trust that we lack nothing. Without that, this is burdensome if you don't believe you've got everything you need. But it's freeing and exciting if we live it believing we've got everything that we actually need. See, vulnerability is essential to growth. And this is something that the people of God had to learn at this time. They were still vulnerable. The crops had not come in. But they were called to still trust God. And it's in the vulnerability that you deepen your relationships with people. You never get close to somebody unless they're willing to be vulnerable with you. Isn't that right? I know it's hard. Um, I've heard apparently it's hard because I don't know at all. But apparently for some people this is, this is hard. Uh, but it's true. I like what uh, Brene Brown says in her book, Daring Greatly. Trust is a product of vulnerability. How do we develop trust with God? It comes through some vulnerability. It grows over time, requires work, attention, full engagement. Trust isn't a grand gesture. I, that's it, I've decided, that's it, I trust you. you know, it, it's an ongoing, learning, growing thing. Our relationship with God develops through times when we are vulnerable. And accepting that will allow us to grow. Fighting it, trying to control and not be vulnerable, will lead us to a place where we're really, we're in control and we're depending on ourselves. Um, maybe you could relate to this passage in Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines. And you can put in here whatever your gaps are, whatever the gaps are in your life. Though the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stall. I mean, life is a mess, basically. And I'm, I'm stuck. Yet I will rejoice. Now, that's a decision of faith, isn't it? There's no logic to that. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer enables me to tread on the heights. Yet I will rejoice. I don't care what the reality is. Yet I will rejoice. God has good for me coming down the road, around the corner, around the mountain, over the mountain, wherever it's coming from. These trees, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive, they were visible. They were standing there in and around Jerusalem. They could look at those trees. They could look at the vine, no fruit. They could look at the fig, no fruit. They could look at the pomegranate, no fruit. They could look at the olive tree, no fruit. And God says, it's okay. And they're like, no, it's not. There's no olive fruit. There's no pomegranates. God's like, no, it's, it's okay. I got it. I got, I got you. They were called to trust despite how things look. This book, uh, When Life Tumbles In, What Then? Uh, by Arthur Gossett. What a name. Um, <laughs> uh, he says this. To me, the essence of the faith has always seemed a certain intrepidity, 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 <laughs> anyway, being intrepid, uh, of loyalty that can believe undauntedly in the dark and that still trusts God, unshaken, even when the evidence looks fairly damning. Isn't that faith? Faith is not faith when it's sight. Faith is not faith when it's all easy. A relationship with God is meaningful when... When things are dark, that's real faith. And I think it's something like that, that God is trying to reinforce in his people by what's going, going on. So last bit of discussion here for you. What does trusting God look like here in Watford or wherever you're from, from Canada and Dublin or wherever? What does it look like practically today for you? 
right? This is not concept. This is not, oh, some people somewhere would think it's this. But what does it mean to you? What does it mean for you right now, maybe with the gaps that you have? What does it mean to trust God right now? Let's have some discussion about that for a few minutes, and then we'll wrap up. Now, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of thoughts about Jesus, and then we're going to sing some songs, your choice, and then we'll take a meeting together. All right, but just, just a couple of thoughts about, well, firstly, this passage in Galatians that I think is a great help when we think about how do we respond to this gap. And Paul says to the Galatians, let's not become weary in doing good. We don't have to make the Christian life complicated. If, often living by faith simply means carrying on doing good. One of the best descriptions about Jesus, it's so simple in the book of Acts, is uh, it says that he went around doing good. And I just, I just love that. It's, it's so simple. So let's not become weary in doing good for at the proper time. We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, this is being discerning, noticing what God is presenting us with, the opportunities that God is giving us, because he's giving you different opportunities to me, right? So what opportunities is God giving us? Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Don't neglect the community here. But whoever God gives you opportunity to do good to because of Christ, I think that is a good response to living in this gap. Jesus, when he, uh, when he went to the uh, upper room and then to the garden and then to the cross, um, where's, I have another quote. Oh, I didn't put it in. Oh, here it is, from the book, The Good and Beautiful God. The father that Jesus addresses in the garden is the one that he has known all his life and found to be bountiful in his provision. So he, he has discovered that he lacks nothing with God. Reliable in his promises, utterly faithful in his love. He can obey the will that sends him to the cross. I mean, that's a tough ask. But he can obey that with hope and expectation because it is the will of Abba, whose love has been so proved that he can now be trusted so fully by being obeyed so completely. This isn't legal obedience driven by commandment. It's trusting response to known love. How do we live a life of trust whilst still in a gap. It's one of the most fundamental things to resolve as a, someone who follows Jesus. Trusting whilst still in the gap. And our uh, concluding scripture here is 1 Peter 2. Uh, it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. That's not fair. They're conscious of God. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong? Okay. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it's commendable. It's not fair, but it's commendable. To this you were called. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. This is our example of how to live in the gap. That's an example that we should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. They held insults at him. He didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, instead of trying to close that gap and resolve it, what did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins. Live for righteousness. Live doing good. Live for righteousness in the gap. By his wounds, you've been healed. You were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned. I think it's a wonderful summary of what it means to, and we're going to take communion. We're going to honor what Jesus did. And we're going to honor uh, what he did on the cross. And there was a gap there between dying on the cross and then the resurrection. 
It's a bit like that for us. There's a gap we're living in. Can we be trusted in this gap?